0: Oh, good morning. This is Doc Scott with my 90-day devotional. Obviously, I'm not um, at work, because I'm still on my way, which means everything's been running really late today, which is kind of fun. Um, You know, so, and the little thing that's holding this phone might fall out of the window any second. So if you see me start to tumble, you'll know that um, that's what's happened. So on Saturday, I shared a a dream um, that I was having that I had that morning and I kind of want to go back to part of it and just a quick recap was that I dreamt that there was this little boy that was um, a loose in my house essentially and that he was um he was dirty he was filthy he was about two feet tall he it was kind of like reminded me of Tarzan you know what I mean but a little version because it was obvious and you know how dreams dreams are really capable of kind of imparting something or making you aware of something in a dream that you wouldn't normally be aware of when you were awake, of course. So in the dream, I knew that he was antisocial, um, that this little boy was, um, essentially, um, wasn't going to be easily reached, um, and that he wasn't used to human connection at all. Kind of like the Tarzan story. And, um, and then I also became aware that he'd been living. Hey, Wesley, how you doing? I became aware that this boy had been living in my house for quite a while. And, um, good morning, Derek. And, um, essentially he'd been there all along. And as I was pacing my living room, you know, talking about the dream, my wife, you know, kind of looked at me and I said at the same time that that little boy was me. And that was startling because, um, I realized that, that the boy was an orphan, that he essentially was some part of me that I had never fully integrated. And, um, at any rate and he had been living off of the refuse in the house like in other words He reminded me of the story. I heard in fifth grade with the borrowers where you got these little people under the floor You know come out at night and they borrow things in the house and at one juncture, I was at the mall looking for ice cream for this kid and um, We never could find it. It was kind of this elusive thing and then I find him um to my chagrin over there eating, um, essentially like somebody's dirty ice cream stick and part of what's left of it. And it was just, it was just disgusting, but it was kind of reminiscent or indicative rather of what he was actually eating, like what he was living on. He was living on, you know, refuse and. I remember at one point in the dream, I, I kept looking at this little kid, this little orphan kid who was me, and, but I hadn't realized that at the same time. And I wanted to just sh- you know shake him up and like get stern with him and make him become civilized, make him become somebody who followed the rules. And I, I remember the only thing I wanted to do was I wanted to get him a shower Like maybe if I clean this little kid up, he'll be uh, presentable because he was nasty. And the realization also in the dream was that I wasn't going to be able to do that. That essentially he wasn't going to allow it. And because he wasn't used to any kind of human, you know, connection. And so with the realization that this was the orphan part of me, and I kind of jokingly talked about briefly um, on Saturday how essentially um, because my wife and I had been doing this Daniel fast with the church um, I was really irritable and when I've done those before it's it's been fine you know it hadn't really bothered me and but because we'd already started an anti-cancer diet even though Jesus healed her in Dawsonville of stage 3 breast cancer We still were doing the preventative thing, which was anti everything. You know, no gluten, no fun, no nothing. And so, um, in fact, in the car, we we were joking or talking about, and she mentioned something about Starbucks, and I was like, "There ain't no way I'm giving that up. It's the only thing I enjoy right now." But needless to say, you know, cutting out some more things for the Daniel Fast, you know, was irritating. And that night, I we had gone to the. Uh, Trader Joe's and I got me a nice bag of gluten-free you know uh, chocolate chip cookies no gluten loaded with sugar and I just had a little feast and I you know really enjoyed myself with that just kind of indulged in my addiction and I felt better for about five minutes and so my point with all of that was is that essentially we try to manage oftentimes like I did I wanted to manage that orphan in me. And it was revelatory to me that this is a part of me that I've been able to keep at bay for a long time. In other words, in the context of denying myself a little creature comfort, right? I suddenly um, became present to what was in my heart. And most people who know me as an extrovert wouldn't think that in that loneliness is something that I've had as a pang in my heart for a, my whole life. There's a place that never really gets satiated. And that I was I was finding myself like every day during this fast just wanting to ball. And I thought, okay, what's going on? And the point was is that we're all pretty addicted and if you don't think you are well, that's how we deal with shame, right? We feed it. We feed it something, and then it becomes a cycle. Because I feel defective, because I feel like there's something inherently just wrong with me because of the things that I've experienced, the things, my, the sins that I've engaged in, and the things that were done to me, that becomes kind of a toxic place in my soul, and it drives us to try to fill this aloneness. I've always been one of those people who has a lot of has a hard time being alone. Um, and there's a difference between being alone and lonely. I have a lot of anxiety if I'm by myself. I don't like it. Um, it. It's like this restlessness comes up in me, and I don't know what to do. And it makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, it's a, it's a painful kind of anxiety, and so you know, I'm able to kind of keep things off because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I'm doing this devotional on shame and breaking free from self-destructive cycles. And the reason that I put it off for three months was because I knew that I'd be living it out loud in front of people and that I would you can't enter into something with God in the mix that you're going to look at and address without becoming part of the equation yourself. in other words, Everything that I'm going to be talking about giving away in any capacity is going to be something he's doing with me. And that's usually how it is with most things. But I want to talk about the management part this morning, the law. Here's what years of this whole construct called holiness has done, I think, to the church. Holiness. God is holy. Yes, he is but we have not seen holiness or a desire. We have not approached our passion leading us into a place of, of holiness because of the kindness of God moving us there. As Instead, we've looked at holiness as a construct that we put on people. It's a it's a rule. It's this huge thing that we put on people that says essentially, you know, you need to clean up, get right, fly right before God um, can have anything to do with you. And what we've done is we've perpetuated shame and we've perpetuated religious shame. So, what happens when people have life dominating issues? What happens when people struggle with things that they have a hard time pulling themselves out of and in our culture today let's just face it we could fill ourselves with everything around us and without any problem at all and um, and constantly be doing that in fact we do it you know we are so surrounded by input that we rarely have a moment where we are not being inundated with information and <clears throat> not only information, but with input, right? We're bombarded. You can't, you can't do anything without being bombarded all the time. There's a constant demand. And so we live in a place of distraction, constant and ongoing distraction, And so how do we um, ever find a place where God can actually access something in our heart? And I'll tell you how this orphan spirit that's in us is connected to the law. Every part of us wants to, what the orphan spirit, what the orphan in us, what that little boy longed for was intimacy and connection. We were made for connection. We were made for um, to live in God's presence as presence-oriented creatures. We were made to to be filled with this presence. That's why every form of idolatry that offers any kind of warmth or presence, if you will, is so tempting. What happens after I eat those five, you know, cookies and sit there on the couch is suddenly, it's almost like if you could think of it as like an essence of heat or presence, I have this warm kind of cozy feeling for about three minutes and then it it goes. And then I feel ashamed for what I just did or engaged in and so I go back into it. And so the law always perpetuates sin. We never get free from the things that we struggle with by promoting the law. And that law is often dressed up in the guise of holiness. You know, we need to be holy. We need to be holy. Yeah, we do, but not as a product of something that we put on. And it becomes a way of controlling um, people and essentially trying to keep everybody in line. Because here's what we don't like. We don't like mess. You know, if you want the power of revival, Proverbs says, if you want the power of the ox, you have to deal with the mess in the stall. The same reason that we don't like mess in our church with people's messy lives and we impose holiness on them as a way to keep them wrapped tight is the same reason that we will shut down a revival. We will shut down a move of God because we don't like mess. Jesus has never been afraid of mess. And one of the things that happens in revival is we oftentimes, because we don't like what it looks like, it's a different kind of mess, okay? We don't like the mess of addiction, but we'd also don't like people acting weird in church. Let's just, you know, honestly. And so what happens a lot of times in revival, and this is the place I think we just need to be really aware is that we will perpetuate and move people into shame the minute that we try to clamp down on what their interaction with the Holy Spirit looks like. We don't like it makes us uncomfortable But here's the thing, I remember back in the Toronto airport vineyard um, movement, the Toronto revival, one of the things that um, would get said at the front of the pulpit a lot of times was, because people were manifesting in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, ways that were really interesting, like bird sounds and dogs and whatever, you know, barking and whatnot. I hate when that happens in church, just kidding. Here's what, what they would say out of what we see in the manifestation is 70% of it might not be God. It might just be the way people manifest when they're encountering the presence of God. It's just like, it might just be that, but 30% of it is, and for the 30%, we're gonna keep going because I'd rather have the activity of God in my life with mess See, that's part of what happens too. When we move towards having encounters with heaven and we move away from this cerebral law law mentality that, you know, basically we, we just behave because we know the right thing to do and we're just trying to always get it right. When we move towards actually having encounters with Jesus, I wouldn't be surprised if they get messier they're going to get messier. You cannot be in the presence of God and not have him expose and kind of reveal and kind of, sometimes we get really caught off guard because somebody gets involved in a spirit filled church and all of a sudden they're coming unglued and we don't like that mess. We want to put it back together, right? Be nice, ship, you know, ship up, get right, whatever. But the truth is, just like I said, all I had to do was pull away a couple creature comforts in my life, and all of a sudden I was fully present to my heart. The problem with addiction is that it keeps me from ever having to be present to what's inside of me. I don't ever have to look. How can I, at this point in my life, be dealing with radical loneliness stuff and wanting to ball every day because I'm on a Daniel fast, like go figure. It's never been a problem before, but because like I said, we were coming off of one thing and it just felt like it was one more thing I was giving up and the way that it hit me this time um, was that I just felt more ripped off than anything, right? And so, When I pulled away a little creature comfort, suddenly I've got this thing coming up in my heart. Look, Jesus is after the fatherless and the orphan. That is his passion on steroids. So why wouldn't he be going after the orphan spirit in us? Because as long as the orphan spirit is in the driver's seat, we will perpetually remain in our place of shame and we will perpetually stay addicted. The pathway to coming out of addiction is not management. Try to get people to manage addiction and watch what it does because management is law. And whether we impose it as a form of holiness, whatever you want to call it, Paul says that essentially the only thing that the law does is it highlights and produces more sin. If all you do is tell me don't, then I will do whatever I'm doing more. And the law, I mean, one of say it Dave Hogan's way, you know how how's that working for you? How's all that law and trying to manage your addiction instead of trying to offer up the orphan to Jesus and letting Jesus embrace that orphan, why wouldn't that be something that would compel us? Because here's the thing. The only thing that will move me into a place of repentance, which is essentially The act of changing my mind about the way I think about something, that's literally what it is, is love. Love is the only motivator. It's his kindness. And that was the verse that got highlighted in my head when I had that dream about the orphan child that was living in my house the whole time, but I never knew he was there, but he escaped notice. That in itself was a huge metaphor. How can I have an orphan that lives in my house that I don't know he's there? Because I'm so addicted to food, to entertainment, to information, to social media, whatever it is. I'm so used to having every part of me filled with the presence of something created rather than the creator that I never have room to look at the orphan in me. Jesus is after that part of us. And my encouragement to us would be this, and here's my prayer. Jesus, pull away. I just ask that you pull away some of our creature comforts. (laughs) Jesus, I ask that you would bring us to a place that would expose us not in the way that the law exposes for punishment, but that would expose us to what we have in our heart. Father, you said the heart, Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. How can I know it? That Jesus, I thank you that there isn't any darkness that isn't light to you. And there is no fear of in love. There is no fear in love. And you are, yes, Kim, you're right kindness and release were two words that we received for 2019 that's right kindness of god we release the kindness of god and we break the power of the law and its connection to shame in my own heart and over the hearts of those around us and we release your kindness that would lead me that would draw me kindness your love that would lead me to a place where I could freely offer you the orphan in my heart, the, the orphan whose name is shame, and that you would adopt us fully in that place. We just release the spirit of adoption where we would cry, Abba, Daddy. Father, we just release that spirit of adoption over our workplace in my own heart, that in every place, and this is metaphoric, but it's also... Here's the thing, in every place that my heart has been forsaken, that you would pick me up. Sometimes we're fooled because we think, when we look logically at everything in our past, we think, well, I had that, I had that. The issue isn't what you see rationally, it's what your heart perceived. And a heart perception is a childlike perception. And it's not the same as the adult. The quick example, five-year-old dad walks out, adult says, uh, dad's chased a skirt. Five-year-old says, what's wrong with me that daddy doesn't love me? So father, everywhere that my heart has perceived that you have forsaken me, or an earthly parent has forsaken me, I ask that you would take me up, that you would adopt and, and passionately go after every part of me that has felt orphaned and that lives from that poverty place of orphanhood, that I might be free in my ability to love. When I get free of shame, I'm free to love and I'm free to have intimacy. Shame keeps me from intimacy, freedom from shame propels me into love, and propels me into being able to receive. So Jesus, I also break off of us this religious thing. When we go to the place we don't want to go, I ask that you would relentlessly pursue us, that you would not leave us because you never leave us in our orphanhood, and that we would not retreat we would not retreat into the orphan and into the shame that would keep me separated from you. Because separation is an illusion of the devil. There's no such thing. You've never left me. You've never forsaken me. And I ask that the revelation of your being with me in every place in my past, In every place today and in every place I go let me not live without the revelation that you are as close as this to me you are in me you are through me you are always here and may my head Lord Jesus that the orphan would not allow my head to ever drop in shame but that I would look you in the face and I would receive the words that you speak, the thoughts that you have towards me, and I would receive the very impartation of love that comes from your eyes that burn with passion for me. In Jesus' name. See you guys tomorrow at 7. Probably not from the car. Blessings.